Here at the Mothball Prophecies, we take the spooky season seriously. Perhaps too seriously. To some people, Halloween is a once a year, get dressed up and take candy from strangers kind of holiday. But for us, Halloween is life. Halloween is something you live and breathe. The ghosties and ghoulies come out to play all October long. So to spread the good word of our blessed holiday, we've made available some All Hallows Eve Mothball merch. Come celebrate with us in our tea Public store, The Mothball Prophecies. Find the link to that and so much more in our Instagram bio, or shop with us on themothballprophecies.com. Happy Halloween. You see, people collect all kinds of things. New, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Welcome to the Mothball Prophecies. I'm Samantha Mashburn. And I'm Jill Huffman. And today we're joined by our very first international guest, a collector, an instructor, an expert on the topic of mourning and sentiment from jewelry to clothing and all the bits in between. I've tried not to fangirl too hard since we've been talking to him. Welcome to the show, The Art of Mourning, Hayden Peters. Thank you so much for having me, Sam and Jill. It means a lot to me. Oh, and we, you know, when I was telling Jill, like I, I was saying, I talk about morning jewelry or the Victorian era, probably every episode, because I've done a, a little bit of research on it, obviously not as much as you have done. And if people only knew, which is what we're going to get into, the process behind it, I think a lot more people would remove the ick factor and really appreciate what it is, because a lot of our listeners love the stories that come with antiques, and there's no better stories than what come with morning and sentiment. So thanks for being on today as our first deep dive episode to share the art of mourning really with our listeners. You've created such a wonderful community on your own. When did you, first I want to talk about, um, we're going to get into your website stuff and what you do as an educator a little bit later, but I want to start from the beginning for you because you had a really early introduction to Victorian mourning. And antiquing you and and I love that you guys call it antique centers in Australia. Oh yes. <laughs> and so you grew up in the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria, and you started going to those with your father. Were you two the only ones in particular that shopped, or was it a family thing? It was a family thing. Um, my dad has a special interest in things like Art Deco and a very keen knowledge on history, so it's a bit of a hobby for him. He's got a very specific focus, not so much on the Victorian era, but say 20th century. Um, he's into the American Civil War as well. So I, I did glean a lot from that. And I come from a very car-related background too. So I had an older brother who would go along with us and he would be trying to find car collectible pieces in these antique centres and things. Right. And um, I was just always fascinated, especially by design and fashion. And I would see these wonderful pieces of antique jewellery and just the style. It was almost mimicking architecture, particularly for the 19th century. Um, you might see that Gothic revival style replicated in silver pieces, especially in the latter 19th century. And I just started to fall in love with the fashion of it and the style of it. 
Which I I can't blame you. That is the one era that I always go back to because it was something that my grandmother has always collected, something that that rode that fine line of like neo-Victorian stuff because they spent 13 years in England. My grandfather was in the service in the Air Force. So I have this gigantic influence of Anglo and English everything in my life that when I started collecting on my own, a lot of stuff was intricate silver pieces when I first started collecting. And mm-hmm. you got your, we started collecting roughly around the same time that I think we were allowed to probably buy antiques because we weren't just buying rubbish. We would buy, my first was like a uh, silver spoons, but yours was a pocket watch, right? Yeah, it was actually, um, so a pocket watch. And my father actually purchased this very necklace that I'm wearing right now. So it's got this um, prop right there. Sorry, it's not a visual medium, but uh, maybe I'll send a picture. Oh, it's And it's got a Birmingham shield. Oh, wow. A beautiful piece, very heavy silver, 1896. Wow. And just you can tell by the design and the the very pointed elements to it, just the the strength and the magnitude of that Victorian era, the height of the empire style. Mm -hmm. So I just fell in love with it. And um, it was something I, I just started collecting more and more on, and I was starting to work. I was very, very young, and I started to get a bit of money on the side. And I would invest every cent I had into morning jewellery, um, silver especially at front, but then morning jewellery second. Uh, sometimes I'd just go without dinners or lunches, and I'd hold down about three different jobs at one time to try and afford it. Uh, and I had a lot of, um, because of my interest in growing up in those antique centres, I had a lot of sympathy from the dealers who were very influential in giving me a lot of my education, mm. but also that being able to touch and feel mm. and experience the jewellery as opposed to going to a museum, seeing it behind glass and having no context. Right. Um, that opened up all the doors for me. It was amazing. So when you, so you started at 14, I mean, did it start just right off the bat that you were like, I got to get my hands on every piece of something from the 18th and 19th century? Very much. I really wanted to catalogue as much as I could about the change in variety of styles and design. So it was um, kind of my way to do deep dive research into the different um, revival periods, the different social impacts, the political impacts of the 19th century. And what I would do is every piece that I would get, because either it's hallmarked or it has someone's details in it, Mm -hmm. such as my first ring, I started to research five years before and after when that piece was either donated to somebody or made. Wow. And the narrative, what my my end goal, especially when I started collecting, was to have a a collection enough to go back to about 1500. Oh, wow. And I do. And that's actually um, part of why I I don't really collect anymore unless I see something very unusual or it's for a a sentimental moment in my life. But I've it's only so much jewelry one person can have, you know. <laughs> well, and you, I mean, you have, for our listeners that don't know, you have an extensive collection. You have what? I think it was what I was reading was 695 plus pieces. Yeah, I stopped counting at one point, just over oh 650. Oh, God. Now, do yeah. you, I was rude, I, you know, try to do as much research as I can before I do a guest. And I came across an interesting bit of information. And it said that a lot of your collection is not with you. You keep it temperature and humidity controlled. Oh, yes. Is that at like NASA or on the moon or is it (laughs) at a museum? You actually have to get your face scanned to get into this private facility. You've got to go through three levels of security. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I had to. I've got a story behind that, actually. And it's very important also that the hair is very fragile. And because of altering humidities and temperature changes, 
where I live in uh, Melbourne, Australia, there is a lot of variety. You can have four seasons in one day. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. And we're very familiar with that here in Idaho. Yeah. Oh, you got it too. Oh, oh yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's rough because you, uh, once upon a time, actually, it was about 10 years ago, I was on TV and I did a, I took a lot of my jewels out to have there for the next day. It was an entire day shooting. And overnight, we had a really hot day followed by a really freezing night. And we had interior humidity, so all the condensation overtook the interior windows. And one of the ivory pieces actually had to be professionally cleaned because the mold just grew. And also because ivory, sorry, ivory is a very difficult subject for some people. I'm talking about sort of Georgian and Victorian. Right. Yeah. Not new ivory trade. Yeah. This is definitely grandfathered in ivory, not the bad, bad stuff now. Yes, exactly. I've, I've got to be cautious about that when I talk about it. Um, so what happened was, uh, yeah, I've had to have that clean, but other pieces where it's been very dry, ivory cracks, it needs to have consistency in the temperature. So the other flip side to that is um, alloys. So morning jewellery at the 19th century, there was the Hallmarking Act of 1854, and that led to lower-grade alloys being used for jewellery proper. Previously, adulterated gold was very, very typical. Um, especially during the Napoleonic Wars, and you get um, a lot of zinc and other impurities trying to pollute the gold because they didn't have it. It was going to the war effort. Sure. Yet by the mid-19th century, morning jewellery was attainable by the lower middle classes. So it's cheap. It's only 33 shillings to get a basic ring. Wow. And, oh, very, very cheap. And a lot of the times they weren't meant to be worn. You might have up to, we've got evidence of over 124 pieces being made for one funeral that were given out at funerals. So they were just ornamental. They were keepsakes. Uh, I could, oh, I'm sure I could talk about this forever. I'm sorry. Oh, no. We, we <laughs> no, planned like, on a... Uh, yeah. Uh, we right, we well, want to hear all about I it. I know. This is fascinating. All about Good, it. All right. I'm, I'm happy to do this for hours. I've been more than happy to. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. Uh, the alloys. Oh, let's do it. Well, the alloys, um, what I did the uh, year before last is I did a, a, a year-long series of workshops in Melbourne City where I actually took out about 150 pieces of my jewellery dating back from 1500 to about 1940. And I got people to handle it, stupid me. And, <gasps> yeah, some of people's acids on the hands actually made oh. the alloys rot. Oh, so no. there I was devastated. So I've, I've cut that out. I won't be doing that again. Um, no, so we've either. got to be very careful. It's not made to last. A lot of these things are keepsakes, not, not built forever. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think when somebody sees a piece of like morning jewelry that's made out of hair in particular, they're like, Mm. who, who was fucking wearing this? And it's like, not really anybody. (laughs) It was meant to be put up and displayed and looked at in remembrance and not Mm -hmm. to be like, look at my hair necklace from my grandma. Like it's, yeah. And that was, and you have a particular piece that started your love affair with it and the story behind it. And I audibly gasp every time I read this story for you because you got an engraved ring, a memento Mori that was, it belonged to Mary Ann Lewis. Mm-hmm. And then, but I want to, I don't want to give the teaser away just yet. Cause the next part is fantastic. But where did you find that ring? Okay. Actually not far from where I live. So there were, back in the old days, there was a series of antique shops in a place called high street in Armadale in Melbourne. A lot of them are gone now. There's one that's remaining. Um, mm. There was one called Park Lane Antiques. And I used to spend a lot of my weekends sort of just hanging out with the, the people there and listening to them and 
of course, they listen to me as well. One of the dealers once said, the best thing a dealer could do is sit back and listen to a collector because we learn from you. And that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I saw this ring and I was, I was on a point where with Victorian silver, I actually had a lot of pieces, um, bracelets in particular, necklaces, um, lockets, things like that. But I was walking in and they had a cabinet right near the front door full of rings. And I zeroed in on this one that said, in memory of, and with black enamel there and a shield, and it's got two serpents coiled around the shoulders of this particular piece. And I just fell in love with it. I thought this is the most beautiful thing someone could do for somebody else to keep their memory alive. And the morbid thing, all of that just never existed for me. And Mm -hmm. I, I get it. But it's love. It's complete, pure love that you're remembering somebody. And that, to me, is elemental. Mm-hmm. They're never gone if you ever forget them. You know, they're there mm-hmm. forever. So I purchased that ring and I started to do my research. She passed away in 1853 and I took it to a jeweler, actually, a friend of mine. So down the street from where I lived at the time, there was um, two ladies who uh, were jewelers and she was playing around with it and she popped the back out. And the reverse of the bezel had a glass compartment but it was kind of frosted glass, so I didn't even pay attention to it. I thought it was maybe a gem. It looked kind of like moonstone. Yeah. And she popped it out, and there's a lock of hair. Wow. And I thought, oh, that's so odd, you know. Um, So I I coveted that piece, and, yeah, it was a long time later, so about 15 years later after I'd gotten that piece. um, This is, gee, this is about 10 years ago now. I was actually working. I had a very high-profile job and very stressful and... I was managing teams in, oh, around Australia at this time, uh, about 750 people all up. Wow. And very, very high pressure. But uh, I got an email out of the blue and I was just, you know, glancing all over the place. I was talking to somebody at the same time and I looked and it's, um, from someone over in London mm-hmm. who is a bit of a mentor for me. Um, there are two ladies, Michelle Rowan and Charlotte Carrick. And Charlotte sent me an email and they don't really, they prefer the older pieces. So more like your pre-1850, more your Georgian and earlier stuff, which they've, I've, I was over there um, was over the last year and I was playing with some absolute world-class pieces like a Horatio Nelson morning ring, which was about oh, 30,000 pounds. It was incredible. And there it is. She goes, hey, you like the black enamels. What do you think of this? And it's the same ring in memory of, and it was the same design. I still haven't captured that same design. I've looked through many, many catalogs. I've tried to attribute it to the, um, the work of John Brogdon, but I still haven't yet because it is a bit unusual. It's It's got the typical Victorian um, design elements, but it's still different. And on the reverse, Mary Ann Lewis, 1853, with the compartment for the hair. 15 years later, out of the blue, I hadn't spoken to her for probably six to eight months or more, and uh, just like a slap in the face. What, what? I started crying on the spot. It's just uh, oh my I get choked up thinking about it, actually. Um, it's just incredible. What a, how did it find me? It's like, you know, finding two, I say, you know, it's like finding two identical grains of sand on either side of the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you happen? were, you were worlds apart, worlds apart. And to find yeah, one of them times. in Australia and one, and it makes you wonder your brain start to spin is did that person immigrate from England to Australia when it became settled by the British mm-hmm. and brought it with. And then the other part of the family stayed there. Like, what is the? And that's the thing is you, you never know unless somebody wrote it down. Absolutely. And that's honestly one of the harder parts about collecting these things is that we don't know. It's a personal tale of someone's either grief or love. 
Mm. And it's only when collectors um, and people start to try and open up a door that doesn't exist into these things, try to overlay romanticism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't I can't give you an answer that's gone. It's, it's lost. And at least in this case, we've got good evidence. I mean, if you wanted to have supposition, 1851, there was the Australian gold rush in Ballarat and a lot of people emigrated to obviously find good fortune. But who knows? Who knows? Right. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. Another story. Well, you know, and what we were saying before is because Victorian morning jewelry is so personal and then we get the ick factor. Some people are like, oh, my God, why Mm. would you do that? But we forget and we've become so far removed from death in Western society that we don't deal with our dead loved ones at all like we used to. I mean, you had a funeral parlor in your home. That's where the name parlor came from. Mm -hmm. But we forget now that we put grandma on the mantle in an urn or a Mm. box Mm -hmm. to remember her. And, uh, but we don't, you know, keeping hair is weird when you have, yeah, that's true. When you look at it that way, because my grandma has my grandpa's ashes in her hutch Mm-hmm. And and my husband has a thing of his grandpa's ashes, right? And it's it's the modern day yeah, memento the, mori, yeah. is ashes. It is, and there's so much symbolism. I kind of want to start at the at the height of it because, I mean, we could record for four hours, but we would lose a lot of people. Oh. <laughs> I want to start. I want to start at kind of the height of the mourning period when Queen Victoria was in perpetual mourning. And it became kind of the en vogue thing to do. And I want to talk about, I want to start with kind of the symbolism aspect of it, because I think it will make people appreciate when they look at like a grave site or etchings on old graves or even some of the jewelry we're going to be posting to -hmm. understand that it's not just a picture. There's a whole story written out in -hmm. that, whatever they're wearing. So let's start with Queen Victoria um, I'm going to let you take the mic on that one because I know this much and you know this much. Yeah. So you take us away okay. on yeah. Queen Victoria and what it, what it sparked for her. All right. So Queen Victoria was an incredibly sentimental person who throughout her life, her first birthday gift was actually uh, two locks of hair in a locket from her parents. So she was influenced by the sentimental industry very thoroughly when she was quite young. And that really led her into a a giant spate of collecting an expectation of things like giving hair and receiving hair and also the sentimental designs that were very popular. So for her engagement gift, she had a series of serpent jewels that were given to her, bracelet, etc. And that was from Prince Albert, the person she would marry. She had a very insular life as well. She was uh, very much dominated by her mother. And marrying the prince consort was one way to essentially break free from that, but also build up this wonderful ideal of the Christian family. And they Mm. designed essentially what would be the footprint for a good British society and how to behave as a family unit. Yeah, Uh, to our detriment now to this day. (laughs) It still exists, absolutely. Oh, I I used to say Australia was the last outpost of the 19th century because everything in our systems is really... um, basically created in the 1840s and 50s. So mm-hmm. from the eight-hour workday to Christmas time to cards to commercialism and stability and, and also economic stimulus are very important for those things. Now, if you think about it, the more they publicise the gift-giving and all of that, it creates an industry of gift-giving. Mm-hmm. So all of this is what we consistently have today. This is how we live. So Victoria was very smart at this 
And I, can I wind it back just a little bit sure. beforehand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, please do. Okay, so the Lord Chamberlain on the death of Princess Charlotte in 1817 really cemented in the mourning custom that Victoria would use and carry through the 19th century. So she was the daughter of George IV, and there was a huge outpouring of grief internationally for her and the British Empire. So that was one aspect that really influenced Victoria. But also what was happening was a reaction against this sort of libertarianism, which had created mass instability throughout the late 18th century. So you've got in 18, sorry, 1789, you've got the storming of the Bastille, and following that you've got the terror. And this originally was supported by George III until he realised the damage that it was having. And there was a lot of concern about, oh, no, are we going to have a revolution of our own? So there was concern there. There was a lot of um, tension from, say, Ireland and Scotland as well, who weren't conforming with the Protestant values. Right. So what happened in the undercurrent there, there was a design system which was being developed by people like um, Augustus Welby Northmore Pugin, who was an architect and uh, very influential, very influential. If you've seen Where Big Ben Is, you've seen his work. Okay, mm-hmm. great. And wow. there was a Gothic revival style of the teens and the 20s, and they were pouring up towards a million pounds into creating Gothic churches and cathedrals mm. in England. And it's a form of stability, but it's also a reaction against um, that libertarianism and that neoclassical thought, which was challenging politics and everything. So by the 1840s, there was a famine and there was mass instability throughout Europe. And Victoria and her politicians were very smart about creating that consistency in values. So when you've got that from a sentimental aspect, you've got all of this um, jewellery and sentimental production from uh, giving of Christmas cards and even just sentimental love tokens Mm. were very, very popular. Mm -hmm. But when Albert died in 1861, it created a new paradigm, and that made mourning more mainstream for everybody because she only allowed jet jewels at court and you had to behave in the certain stages of mourning. Those, so we've got, you know, the, we've got a full mourning stage right through to the ordinary stages and up to a year, three months, three months, and so on. So it was very um, dominating for a family and it was considered bad form if you did not have a good funeral. To have a pauper's funeral was actually frowned upon for the rest of your family. Oh. So concurrently at this time, we've got the development of burial societies and friendly societies where some of the poorer classes were giving up to half of their wages just to have a decent burial and provide for Mm. their families. Mm. And if you look outside in a city and you see a big logo on a building, which is an insurance company, they've often got their roots within these 19th century burial societies. Really? So exploitation is happening at the same time. It was a huge form of exploitation. I'm going to just interject because they were, when I was doing my program for the ladies in my group, you know, I was talking about the different stages of mourning and how there was a protocol that you were to follow. And one of the protocols was you could not like if you were in full mourning, which is wearing all black, depending on your relation to the death, you could not rewear that outfit again to mourn in. You had to throw it away. So if you were poor, you were taking your good garments that were either white or ivory or cream or whatever, and you were coloring them to the proper colors oh my gosh. so that you didn't look like, so you weren't perceived and kind of bastardized in this culture, right? Yes, absolutely. And it was harder for the poorer classes too. So dying at this particular time was about 17 shillings a dress. And, you know, dying in the 19th century um, was more or less a new invention for the black dyes, you know. But still you couldn't have lusterings. 
And I'm just looking at the breakdown. I've got so a widow for a husband in first morning was one year, one day in Bombazine in heavy plain crepe. Mm. Uh, second morning, nine months with less crepe. And ordinary morning, three months with black silk with ribbon and jet. Oh and <laughs> we've got the half morning, six months in half morning colours, which you could introduce scarlet and lilacs and things like that. But also there was time, say, if like your husband died, you couldn't leave your house. Oh, yeah. For, yeah, yeah, yeah. for a certain amount of time, you'd had to really be in your feelings. In, yeah about it that's this is what's fascinating to me about it is and we keep we have a lot of these ritualistic things still in the way we perform funerals now Mm, we have a lot of rituals like planting flowers on a grave Mm -hmm. because during the victorian era if you if flowers if didn't come up where you were buried you were a sinner and you were worthless and so they would smuggle in flowers to plant so you didn't look again like an idiot that's yeah yeah, it's all the affectation and trapping. And essentially, that's what killed the industry. Pun mm. intended, I suppose. The <laughs> Surely. Can't help myself. And one of, you know, it one was, of uh... my favorite things about um, mourning in particular, because I am a hairdresser by trade. So oh. I have always been fascinated by the hair aspect. And, you know, I always tell people, I say, we didn't always have photography, but we've always had hair. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of. I've always said I'll, I'll trade one diamond for any strand of hair. I don't care about diamonds. I care about the hair. That's so sentimental. Mm-hmm. I have. I have the piece I'm going to show you, but I also have in my cabinet behind us, I have two bundles of hair that were found in a trunk in Ohio, and they are braided and cut. I'm assuming it's from a mother and daughter. They're braided and cut and wrapped in the newspaper from that day, from the 1920s. Oh, wow. And Beautiful. to me, I'm like, everybody's like, what are you going to do with that? And I'm like, Nothing. It's just going to, unless I yeah. figure out how to do any type of table work, but yeah, yeah, it's an artifact. I mean, that's someone's life or what's left of them mm-hmm. right there. I don't know how much more sentimental it gets from that. You can create things, but to grow something and to give it, well, you only get one chance at that. That is, mm-hmm. that is for sure. That's and, true. you know, let's talk a little bit about the, the different types of like the progression of mourning and sentiment jewelry, if we can. You know, it started with rings and different things like that, and it progressed. And it's it's interesting how that happens. And I want our listeners to know kind of where we have, like, different things, how it ends on lockets, for instance, where we kind of stop there. Because that's, sure. we, yeah, we, and, you, you know, lockets are, I'll let Hayden tell it. He knows all about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, a, it's an interesting tale, really. Uh, it's going to go back a few hundred years. So previous to the 16th century, everything was under more of an ecclesiastical paradigm, so Catholicism. Mm. And in 1517, on October 31st, we've got Martin Luther nailing his 95 Thesis to uh, a door in Wittenberg, and after that we've got the Protestant Reformation. So that created this incredible split. You can really see it throughout the Northern Europe and the Southern Europe. So Southern is traditionally Catholic, France is Catholic, And a lot of the Protestants actually moved into England to try and have security and safety. So during the 1530s, we've got Henry VIII calling for the act of supremacy and essentially establishing himself as the supreme governor of the Church of England. And following that, they actually put a ban on Catholic jewellery and they tried to have uh, anything within the Sea of Rome, I believe it was called. So ecclesiastical jewellery changed and the trappings of what it was to be under God changed. So at this particular time, we've also got a really burgeoning middle class, and that's through mercantilism. 
And a lot of people are making money when they didn't have that right before. And you start to see the influence of guilds mm-hmm. and also universities happen at this particular time. So we've got education. And these wealthy people could now put their kids through school and they could get them educated and you no longer had to go and do what your mother or your father did. So this was a huge change. And you start to see these particularly rings, but also pendants and other things, uh, yeah, necklaces. They were created to have the skulls and the crossbones and things like that, all the, the desecration of the body imagery and death itself. And Memento Mori was the title of this, Remember You Will Die. And that's not mourning. It's actually a reaction against judgment. So living a better life to be judged. So we see these jewels of this particular time. And sure, some are, absolutely, definitely. But the early ones, very much it's about status. It's about wealth. It's about education. It's about living and being judged. So now this is what you will become, skulls and crossbones, not under Jesus. That's why Jesus, Mary, and all those Catholic figures aren't being used for the Anglican church. In jewellery, I should mm-hmm. say. Obviously in mm-hmm. churches, yes. <laughs> yeah, but not in... <laughs> obvious, that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not in the jewellery was... that was becoming popular. And I yeah. love I love so the skull and crossbone effigy. That's one of my favourites. Oh, it's always, it's always been popular and never will go out of style. That's one thing. It's, it's always been popular. Uh, throughout the 17th century, so there's a, a huge change, especially in the 1660s and 1640s. So we've got the um, English Civil War. And what happened there was we've got uh, the royalists and they popularised the use of things like lockets and they were trying to house imagery of Charles I who was executed. So we've got imagery of Charles I and it's hidden, either one close to the heart or even in rings. Mm -hmm. So lockets became kind of associated with the mourning aspects from that, especially with portraiture. And following on with the restoration, so 1660, we've got mass um, uh, attrition happening over in London. So we've got the Great Fire of London, 1666. Uh, We had a frost that happened a bit later. Uh, We've got the plague, Mm -hmm. 1665. And it's it's incredible. But people are seeing death all around them. And the morning jewellery that started to become very, very popular appropriated all of the Memento Mori styles and used them for all of the morning purposes, and the industry became something which could be self-sustainable between about 1680 and 1730. Uh, You've got the revocation of the Edict of the Nantes, so a lot of the French Protestants in the 1680s moved into England, and you've got goldsmiths and jewellers who are incredible at their craft, and you start to see more standardisation in the designs of this particular time, particularly then when we had ribbon slides and things like that. Uh, a ribbon slide is usually an octangle, octagonal or um, oval shapes um, of this faceted crystal, hmm. which is colloquially known as Stuart crystal, hence the Stuarts who are in power, and it was popular for this time, and they were worn on ribbons around the bodice, the neck, wrist sometimes, usually the bodice, and uh, very much an anachronism now, but they used to have hair, woven hair, and then you've got the symbols of memento mori, you've got the skulls and crossbones on top of it. Uh, following that, they're very Baroque. And by the end of the Baroque, we've got the Rococo style. And by the 1720s, 1730s, we've got people like Thomas Flack who introduced those designs into England and are very popular also around Europe. And the morning morning designs in jewellery were so ingrained in society, it adapted every time throughout the next two centuries. Morning jewellery never went away. It was always consistently popular. And also post-1730s, 1760 onwards, um, we've got the 
lower classes, middle classes trying to behave as the upper classes would in mourning by mm-hmm. having the affectation. And the upper classes didn't like it that much because they felt it actually cheapened the, the r- ritual of mourning that they were doing. But eventually you can't stop these things and prices did drop. Uh, then we've got the neoclassical era, so about 1760 to about 1820 period. And there you see you've got these large rings, Nevet style, based on the name of the diamond cut, very large north to south. And you've got uh, beautiful depictions of, say, a, a weeping lady next to a tomb or an urn with a, a weeping willow around her, very standard style. And these developed right throughout the 1760s to about 1800. And they became the allegory, so allegorical jewellery that had um, stories in them, essentially, telling a story about grief and love. There were betroth- many, many betrothal pieces, um, maybe two lovebirds on top of a fountain and maybe a lady with a bird in a cage that shows her virginity and how she hasn't offered it to a suitor yet. Mm. Um, but the mourning and, and the sentimental styles were really influenced by that libertarianism. Education was a thing. So we've got a dictionary in the 1760s by Samuel Johnson. And we've got uh, a middle class, an upper middle class of young people who are incredibly wealthy. And they went to their parlours, they challenged thought, and, well, we have succession of America in the 1770s. And there's a lot of feeling going around that liberty and personal rights are very important, most of all, not the government, but personal rights and property. And that was that fear that I was talking about before, how it was very popular. Yeah. Even uh, the Prince of Wales was actually challenging his dad at this particular time, George III. Uh, anyway, the, the jewels changed and morphed until we've got large miniatures, which were carried around, especially in the turn of the 19th century. And you've got those still same designs or personal um, images of people, but obviously uh, that's quite wealthy and related to the British schools that were happening at this particular time uh, because there were more artists who could be paid to do it. And that really comes from the top down. So always look towards the monarchy where the money comes from Mm -hmm. and the aristocracy will copy it. And then you've got artists who are poor and they can actually design these things as opposed to have to do other menial jobs to get money. Yeah. And so we've got, by the turn of the 19th century, we've got uh, Napoleonic Wars, we've got lower grade alloys used, um, like the the jewels that were made, usually canateel work and um, basically designs which look really large, but they're Mm -hmm. using gold wire. And no standardisation. We've got so much movement throughout Europe. People are emigrating. Things are changing. And you've got jewellery designs in rings especially that are so very different. You've got all these different um, styles, but not one is consistent until we hit about the 1810 to 20 period. And that's where you see the very, what the especially in the 19th century, the, the basic templates for, say, a ring with a swivel or a shield and in memory of on a band, uh, hair work either, within the bezel or underneath the bezel, which kind of made it more popular in the 1850s, and the Gothic Revival style. And brooches became very, very, I was going to say big, but important. They didn't actually physically become big until the mid-century when you've got things like the crinolines and your large sleeves um, needed to have big jewellery and big hairwork bracelets, um, big clasps, big brooches, so popular, big lockets. Um, Lockets actually became more popular during the 1870s and 80s when fashion actually slimmed right down and narrower sleeves, especially in the 70s. And uh, you could have the the large locket at the neck and it was more striking. But the brooches with in memory of big hair that's cut and pasted and sometimes with Albert curls, you know, beautiful things. It was like their Um, version of the 1980s hairband stuff, but they were just getting really (laughs) big with their clothing and jewellery. 
That's it. I mean, geez, I'm glad they didn't have shoulder pads back then. Oh, could you imagine yeah. the the memory of shoulder pads with like braids coming down off of yeah. them? And hey, don't don't say it just yet. I'm sure something. I will know. Come I was going to say had... so. <laughs> somebody's going to bring one that. Person. There's a collector. I'm not sure where, but um, someone in the British Museum actually sent me a, an image about. Um, I think it was a morning nutcracker. Oh, so oh. There's, there's objects of all sorts being produced. <laughs> plates and cups and you name it you could outfit your house uh what was happening at this particular time there was these morning warehouses and they are international so they're everywhere boston new york spread out over london edinburgh australia they had several in right in melbourne wow they exploited people so thoroughly for death and they had rigorous competition they would basically put each other down within newspapers and you'd have advertising versus advertising mm. underneath each other. And I, I did a talk actually, my last tour was called Profit and Loss, where I, I, I actually was in a chapter of a book as well, where I did a bit of a thesis about it. It's I, I was just working my way through that lecture over the last couple of days. I've just been watching it. It's very interesting. Oh, mm-hmm. It's so the, interesting. The Missouri went for eight hours on that one. So <laughs> I can talk for eight hours. It I, literally did. I am also that way. So I totally, I totally (laughs) empathize. Well, and this was, I mean, because there was, I mean, this is one of the most interesting things to me was the industrialization of mourning Mm. is it was, if there's ever an opportunity to make money, there's going to be people that are going to capitalize on that, whether it's always, and that's the modern day funeral industry is that way now. And you know, the interesting thing to me is the way they got the hair for, because they were importing tons and tons and tons of hair mm-hmm. and they were is it yeah. true that they were going to like convents to get the nuns to cut their hair off during the morning to get that hair oh, yes absolutely so uh we've got a lot of evidence especially from the advertising even of the different hair artists of the 19th century who once again very rigorous competition whoever could have the, the approval of the queen was always going to be one of the best and uh and tony Florio was that particular person but you'd have many people say that uh, if you give us even an ounce of hair, we'll weave it into something amazing and you're always going to get the offcut back. Wow. And there is no way. You've, if you haven't seen these pieces, listeners, I'm sure that you can Google around and see some. But to make a bracelet or something as large as even the, the beautiful palette works pieces with um, the feathered hair and everything, you need a lot of hair for that. So what they would do is around Europe, and you can spot the hair from pretty much what colour it is, where it came from. So obviously the north is very blonde, south very dark. And the nuns would grow their hair incredibly long, and it's safe, it's treated. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're always well kept, you know. Yeah, sure. And cut and sold. And prices skyrocketed throughout the 1850s to 70s. I don't have it in front of me, but in France they were complaining about just how it almost quadrupled in these wow. times. And England alone was importing up to about 50 tonnes of hair per year during the 1850s. So it was a huge number. Yeah, it was um, a full, it was a full, Jill's looking at me like, what <laughs> the hell? It's, it was a full-blown industry and it was, and it was, the women were creating the pieces in the back of like jewellery shops and the men were fronting, like we're doing mm-hmm. all this, tra-la-la. But it was women and it became, correct me if I'm wrong, Hayden, it became like what we like knitting at your house. Like ev- some houses had the table to do the mm-hmm. table work and it was a hobby that everybody was doing. And then if you could make money. Yeah. yeah why not? Yes. If you're going to make money, you, you know, it, yeah. it is one of the first industries in the early modern era, like a commercial industry to 
pay women to do it in the cottage industry. Mm-hmm. And it became so very important and especially obviously in the 19th century. I mean, there's some other influences through sailors that were captured from the Napoleonic Wars going into it, but women were very fundamental in making it into the industry it was and especially because it's it's also closer to folk art as much as it is commercial, mm-hmm. as you mm-hmm. said. That's yeah. why, especially in America, I find it, oh, Switzerland too, but America you'll find much more to do with the folk art side of things. Yeah, I would Where it could have been made in a house for mm-hmm. a, an event or for a, a a gathering. I've got a bracelet with um, seven kinds of hair in it, with the initials of each person from 1855. Wow, that's incredible! It's just uh, it's a sentimental token. Yeah, and that's you know the interesting thing when I was um, doing my research for that group, and I found Mark Campbell's pattern book. You know, there wasn't when they were collating that book together. That really was the only pattern book to go off of to create the styles of the time, mm. and it does not make any sense to look at it you're like what the fuck are they talking about (laughs) but it tells you how to set up your own table and let's talk about that a little bit because you and i know the terminology of what we're looking at when we see a piece of mourning or sentiment jewelry so -hmm. let's walk through like what table work is and gimp work and pallet work and sepia is my favorite part of it because it's so unexpected well the the sepia pieces are my favorite too i think they're um well they're so emblematic of their time they're they are the the perfect latter 18th century. But here um, you've got a spindle. So a spindle, yay, just over a foot high, be very typical. And you could thread the hair through, and as it span, you could weave. So it's mm. um, very, very similar to, say, uh, maybe a, another kind of fabric industry. Maybe It's like making lace like and that. tatting lace. You would kind of move yeah. things around. That's, that's it. Yeah. Whereas your palette work is whether you've got the cut, chopped hair, and then using gum arabic glued onto the surface. So generally these, they look like little flowers or they look like curls. Mm. And generally you'll find them with pearls and gold wire. What's uh, the symbolism usually... with that, with the pearls and the gold wire? And it, was it just for aesthetics or was there a purpose for it? Mostly aesthetic unless it's um, forming something like a, 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 uh, like a bow or a cornucopia or something yeah, like that. Something like that. It, it's just the way it was because a lot of these were actually designed from samples. So they had a lot of these traveling, um, the sellers essentially, the retailers, they would go out with a sample book. And they would come to your house even, and you could pick out what you wanted, and they would go away and have it produced, often probably already produced if the colors of the hair were matching. Close enough to what you sent them with, yeah. What was there difference yeah. between, like, men and women hair? Like, women's hair was generally like this, and men's hair was made into this. Was there a difference, or was it just whatever the family picked? Very much up to the family. I, I think if you want to have a modern eye and look back on it, if you see pieces that are very crude, so if you see, like, chopped and then twisted maybe a little plait and then put into a locket you're guaranteed that's going to be somebody's hair that's a that's the actual person because it's a sentiment it's it's not really done artistically the brooches who knows they were made in volume and they were in demand mm-hmm. and they're very consistent in their style so is it the real person's hair or not i don't know uh and men's men's jewelry was more along the line of um especially in hair they would have the the hair watch chains and they're very typical, very robust, very hard wearing. They were used for sentimental purposes, not just mourning. I think that's a, a, I should just point out one of the biggest fallacies is that um, hair is always mourning. It's about 80% sentimental, 20% mm-hmm. mourning. 
just the thing to do. Yeah, and we've got evidence what, going right back to what like sets people off from uh, appreciating it is they think it's just about death, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. When and when there was, you know, there's instances of like before photography and it was very expensive to have a picture taken. You'd get together as a family and everybody'd snip a little bit of their hair off. They'd put it in a book and they'd write, This is from dolly and she was seven years old and she's doing this and blah 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 and they'd work through the whole family so you find these great big framed pieces of family history in uh it's like was what they did and now we just take selfies and put what it is and there was one i saw it's my favorite when they're tied on with thread they're like embroidered onto the piece of paper they're fascinating to me have uh, well, it's like today. I'm not sure if it's custom for everybody, but certainly when I was a kid. But uh, newborn babies, the parents usually snip mm-hmm. the hair and put mm-hmm. in plastic and in a book. I do it yeah. all the time at work. We have like a little kit at the front desk that yeah. it's when it's a kid's first haircut. We try and keep the longest piece of hair and we stuff it in and we write the time and the date mm-hmm. and the blah blah blah. Yeah, goes all That's the way lovely. back. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I'm huge on sentiment and the story behind things. Like that is my driving force in everything mm-hmm. I collect, and a lot of the things I do. The reason we started this show was, I was sitting in a room with these women who were all 50 years older than me, telling me stories that their family would never hear, mm-hmm. and they're talking yeah. about, you know, they're talking about their grandmothers and their great grandmothers and them making dinner with this silver platter or like one woman in my group has several sets of Tiffany cufflinks that have been passed down over several generations. And to, to look at those things, if you're one of their children and you don't know about these items, you're just like, Oh, mom's crazy. And she's got a lot of shit. Yeah. But me sitting there, I was like, this is moving history mm-hmm. right now. It, it is. And you need to record as much of that as you can. And it, nothing makes me more sad than, having someone who's not communicated with a grandparent or a parent and recorded down as much of their life as possible. And I say that to people, record it. Mm-hmm. When they're gone, they're gone. And uh, I lost a brother quite young. He was 19. I was about 15. And the first thing that I did was ask the funeral parlor for his hair. It was just automatic. It wasn't anything to do with me and morning jewelry or anything like right. that. It was just instant reaction. Because right. I wanted that keepsake. And I keep mm-hmm. that with the jewels, actually. It's very, it's obviously mm-hmm. one of the most precious things I have. Surely, yeah. So... Actually, there was a collector over in London once and she had some pieces for sale and she's a retired lawyer and she wanted uh, to sell off all of her stuff, right, dating back to about 1750s. Oh. And I was quite young at the time and I got to talking to her and she said, uh, all my kids don't want it. They don't want any of the morning stuff that she had compact miniatures, 19th century photography with hair, uh, hair work uh, rings from the 1780s and I'm like, what? Your kids don't want it. And she goes, no, no, no. They just want all the jewels with um, gems in them. They don't care about the stuff. So I said, look, I'm going to buy everything, but I want you to give me the provenance of every piece and the person, and then I'll I'll keep them until I die and then they go to a museum or something perhaps. And that's, you know, this is the thing that we come across time and time again Mm -hmm. is we interview somebody who's like us, a collector, and it's the history and the story and that love affair you get with your things. And then to hear their kids that are just like, no. And I've had a couple people since we've started the show, they'll come up to me and they go, I didn't appreciate what I had. And now I find myself going, what do I have in my house? And what am I looking for when I go out? And what's its story? Mm -hmm. Because we've become such a hyper materialistic society. Things Mm -hmm. are disposable. Things are meant to be thrown away when they break, blah, 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 blah. And we don't form an attachment to it. And that's... Yeah, that's that's a... 
Yeah, that's just what well, we're huge doing. reason why the industry disappeared was um, we've got so you know you can look towards the Art Deco period, but really that's modernism. It wasn't coined Art Deco till a lot later in the seventies. But it's modernism, it's commercialization, it's products, and it's people being global, moving, having sentimental gifts, which are decorations for the house, vases, mm-hmm. things like that. Lesser importance on giving a, a really intimate memento of something to, to somebody, of yourself, your hair, or something like that. And it's just become the way we are. We've removed ourselves from the immediacy of ourselves, whether that's in death or life and love, mm-hmm. because of hair and things of whatnot. And it's sad in many ways. And you're right, you've got to ask people about their connection to a specific thing as opposed to us understanding what it means, because that's almost lost. It is. Mm-hmm. It is for mm-hmm. sure. And, you know, we have, you know, we'll have people ask us all the time if, you know, well, what's the value of your stuff or what's this or what's oh, that? All the time. And it pisses me off all so the time. I'm much. Like, that's, not, that's not why I'm like my, my grandfather, who was my dear darling, he passed away several years ago. And he was the one that was like, you have an appreciation for this. You need to know the history and the antiques in my grandmother's house. Nine times out of 10, the ones I'm going for are the ones that I know the story behind versus the ones I know could fetch a pretty penny that are, you know, meaningless in Mm -hmm. the sense of the story to me, but Mm -hmm. maybe are worth quite a bit. And I think, you know, Jill is a super practical collector and everything in her home gets used Mm -hmm. if she's going to have it. And it's tangible. Yeah. And I almost go for the dishes that are scratched up because those are the ones that hold the story. Like I always say, you know, grandma or mom made this special disc for a holiday or a birthday and it got scratched in it. And so those are the things that I enjoy. Like I have my great grandma's um, cooking pots and I still use them to this day. And every time I um, use them, I think of her. Yeah. Like I can see her in the kitchen and I can smell what she's cooking because she cooked Southern stuff. And so I can always smell that fried chicken Mm -hmm. every time I use them, no matter what I'm cooking. You know, and that's, you know, that's where as we get more intricate in um, just the art of mourning, which really what it is, you would start to get these pieces of that's called gimp work. Mm -hmm. And it was like, uh, oh, how would you explain it, Hayden? It was like a diorama of sentiment. A scenario. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, I mean, the, the fun thing about that is because it, it does relate closer to the folk art, people can influence their designs with elements of sentimentality for them, especially in the 19th century. If you go to Leila's Hair Museum in Missouri, she has an incredible collection of all of that. And it, it ranges from just what some girl would have done in the house or towards what a family sentiment would be. And it's just so personal. And that's where, honestly, the identification kind of gets difficult because let's say someone has a depiction of an elk or something like that. It could be part of the family motto. It could be something that someone saw on a special day. And I can talk forever about what that might symbolize, but I can't exactly say, well, that's, mm-hmm. that's it, you know? Right. Because I mean, so, yeah. and there was, I mean, there's a, there's a set guide to kind of some of the things that you would see in mourning um, the allegory behind it, you know, like weeping willows and urns and cherubs and pointing to the sky, pointing down Mm. children, whatever it was uh, to get a point across to where somebody could kind of look at it and be like, Oh shit, her kid died. And then move along. Yeah. Yeah. Without having to really explain it all. Yeah. Yeah. Pre pre 1820, there was no standardization. So during these times around the turn of the 19th century, you've got things like floriography and you've got the mystical properties of gems or the magical properties of gems becoming very popular because gems were actually very, very cheap. They'd flooded the market after the terror because the 
they, the gold went to the war efforts and the coffers, but it, but nobody wanted the gems. So gems started to assign meaning and more more magical understanding of their properties, whether it's from healing someone to having a successful childbirth to whatever. And floriography was this intense study of obviously flowers, but flora and fauna to try and associate a different sentiment with each and every item. And you start to see as Darwinism became a thing, people want to go internationally and start classifying as much of the natural world as possible. Mm. And they assigned it, but it wasn't completely like written down until about the 1850s when it became more popular. So the language of flowers is a very good book. And from there, that's when they can catalogue and they can use more of their designs for their set masterpieces, whether it's in a locket, you might see a very Victorian locket with a certain element in it. Um, but still, when it's the personal stuff, you know, who knows? Yeah. I, I, we can only just suggest. And that's, that is, I love the, um, with anything to do with um, sentiment, even if it's a, you know, if you find like at an estate sale now or a shop, you find a postcard. Mm-hmm. that has something written on the back, even though it's mm-hmm. written and there's certain words in there of, I love you, I miss you or whatever. Mm-hmm. You still don't know the whole story. No. And my, so my husband's grandparents, his grandpa was in world war two. And so his grandma kept all their letters that they wrote back and forth. Oh. And so you can see the progression, like when he started and then when he came home and all that kind of stuff. And, like it's a beautiful thing like you just don't see that anymore like the sentimental like the sentimental values Mm -hmm. you don't see those anymore between relationships and families no no no. deep fried selfie culture which just wants to try and you know get as much gratification in the moment as possible Mm -hmm. but you've got to appreciate where you came from and you really do need to spend the time like the time when you could be surfing the internet this time when you could be talking to your mother or father, mm-hmm. um, which I've been very proactive in doing now that my parents are getting up there a bit. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure that I've got as much as I can, because even when my grandmother passed away a few years back, I've got a book of photos. I don't know who any of these people are. I've yeah. no idea. So I got my dad sat down and digitized each one. And he had to tell me exactly who they were. Because mm-hmm. when he's gone, that nobody will know who yeah. these people were. And then, you know, when you're gone, they end up in a, a antique store somewhere to be picked up and, and that's mm. but that's my it breaks my heart. I love old pictures, but it breaks my heart to see somebody's whole yeah. family laid out in a booth for a price. Yeah, we have an that's actual cool. um, photo album that my husband found at a yard sale. Mm. He wanted a dollar for it, and my husband just oh. snatched that thing up. And yeah, it's like almost you become their final protector. I know, like, I'll give you like, your I your know. home. Like it, it like <laughs> I did. I like I'm your mom now. You're coming home with me. <laughs> well, that yeah. was, you know, one of the first interviews I did was with my grandmother because I didn't get asked my grandpa those questions because he passed away when I was 22, 23. And it was very, very sudden. There was no, no idea that he was going to pass away. And he loved stories. Oh. He was an author. And yeah, I don't know. Have I ever spoken? I don't think I've ever spoken about it. My grandpa is a published author. And he, um, the day his first book was, it was going to publishing, right? He received the final dust cover and he had posted it on Facebook and he goes, look at how great this is. It's coming out this fall. And he died that evening because he had oh. an undiagnosed brain bleed. I don't want to cry about oh. it. Um, That's terrible. So he had this undiagnosed brain bleed and it was, he had such a high that day. He sat down 
for dinner with my grandma, just like they always did for 60 years. Sat down, had dinner, then looked at her very confused, and he was gone by that evening. And I just felt so cheated. Because I didn't get to ask him about... When you're older and you can relate to your parents and your grandparents as a person and not your caretaker. Mm -hmm. And so I sat down with my grandmother after we started the show and I said, I want to know who you were before you were my grandma. What were your, what were your hopes and dreams and what did you want from life? And why did you do the certain things that you did? Because I don't want to miss that opportunity again. Mm -hmm. To have that. That's so smart. Did you record all that? I did. And then she called me after like every person we've ever interviewed and go, was it good? <laughs> Don't include this. <laughs> you know, she says something and I won't say it on air, but she thinks that like members of her family are going to listen <laughs> and like her sisters in her 80s. I'm like, nobody's listening, grandma. And she talks about very real things that were happening to her at the time, but it's so beautiful because it's so human. Mm-hmm. And she's from yeah. that era of you don't you don't share what's going on behind your closed doors, which is not yeah, exactly. what we do. <laughs> the funny thing is that we don't change as a species. We adapt. We our behavior always stays the same. And like I've got, I've, because I've done a bit of genealogy in the last few years. There's a black sheep in the family. Someone would disappear for nine months and then suddenly not be pregnant anymore. And wow. all sorts of funny little things would happen, but you, they didn't talk about any of that. It's improper. Well, and we, I don't know if you're familiar much with the area of the country that Jill and I live in. We live in Idaho, which is north of Utah, which is okay. a large LDS, the Church of Latter-day Saints, Mormon country, if you will. Oh. Very, yes, okay. very, I mean, we're the odd man out. Let's put it that way. So one yeah, side right. of my family is LDS, the other side is not, but the big thing in that religion is genealogy. So on my father's side, my his grandmother did the genealogy all the way back to what they say Adam or Eve or whatever, really far <laughs> back. But they also omitted things. So my grandmother who passed away this year was her mother was the product of a brothel that her great grandmother owned. Oh my god. But you can't if you go looking for it through my grandmother's lineage, you won't find any of it. You have to go another mm-hmm. way because she just and when she died, she died with it. She'd never shared the stories of that. She just was like, no, nope, we're keeping this. Yeah. Like, don't tell anybody that. Yeah. yeah. And I was and I understand, you know, because she converted late in life. And that is definitely at the time was a very shameful thing to have in your past. Mm-hmm. But damn it, I yeah. would love to know that story. I know. It'd be fascinating just to even understand how the family behaved just on, just when they found out about it. Yeah. Little things. And they were her mother, like she would go to a town and get married and then get tired of that guy, pack the kids up and leave. And there's no Google. There's no records being shared state to state. So you get two hours away from your town and nobody knows who the hell you are. And you start again. So she did that. What we know, what we can count seven times. Oh my. But we don't know that she was ever divorced. (laughs) (laughs) And when my grandma died this year, we found out about two half siblings that were just left with one of the exes. It's wild. It's wild. Good Lord. This is why I love stories. (laughs) No, this is because of that. (laughs) Which are you, is your family, because you have an interesting family history too. You had, was it costume designers in your family? Is that what that was? Yeah, my mother's, so my mother's side's uh, Italian immigrants. So they're from the North. 
of Italy, which is now Croatia. So it was annexed, Italian-speaking, um, after World War II. And they came through Australia in internment camps. And my mother is very much into, she's always worked in fashion. So she's um, merchandise and always worked in fashion. Uh, my dad's, um, well, it's a bit of, a lot of British, um, Norwegian, which we found out about, you know, like I, I didn't know any of this stuff until I, and I came through Boston and um, has a connection back to Portugal, which is wow. something strange that I found out only a few months ago. <laughs> It's always been a rumor, though. There's always a rumor about a Portuguese connection. But... <laughs> to see it on paper, you go, well, shit, I guess it's actually. And that's, yeah. that's what I love about because people try so well to tidy up their history, right? To, it's the early oh, yeah. form of social media. Just be like, nope, only the best, only the best, only the best. And then when you start to do digging, you're like, hold on a minute, guys. You're what like, is this? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> stuff well, going on back there. There's, you know, and dad's got very dark skin, too. So there's always a, you know. Where's the dark skin coming from? Everyone's like Norwegian and British. What's going on here? Something's off. One side of my family, my mother's side, is all Scandinavian. They settled the area. And my dad's side is the side with the brothel history. <laughs> and to look at my dad, he's very tan. Yes, he is very and tan. And I got all of the Swedish. I got none of whatever he had because <laughs> I am mostly just alabaster 90% of the time. Oh, my, my older brother who passed away, he, um, he brown skin, uh, black eyes, black hair. So oh, like really? really dark skin. And yeah, but night and day, everyone would ask us, oh, you guys got the same parents. Yeah. <laughs> more fair. I, w- I was like white blonde until I hit about 12 years old and straight hair too, believe it or not. Oh, oh uh, now you have beautiful. I, I make uh, hair contact before I make eye contact. 90% of the time. And I was like, Oh my God, his hair. Cause it's what was 75% percent, um, silver gray, which I love. I wish that we would stop bastardizing it as a color. And it's Thank this you. beautiful wave shape that you have and you are impeccably dressed and you always are in all of your videos. You have a nice jacket on and a nice shirt. Oh. I mean, could you leave some Bless of it you. for the rest of us, Hayden? Well, that's my love of fashion. It's um, when I was a kid, I fell in love with men's fashion first before the jewelry stuff. So I researched uh, fashion history and costume history from about 1753 to about 1940. And I was so very specific about it. If I saw someone who was a gentleman drawn in a silhouette that was perfect, I could name if it was from Spain, France, Britain, or America. And uh, I could name the cut. I could name the reasons why. Like if a, if a czar traveled in the 1710 period, I'm oh, sorry, the 1810 period through England, I could tell you why. Wow. Um, but my love of fashion has always been there and I've always loved wearing suits. I don't know why. Uh, but when my, so after my brother passed away, I've sort of got very familiar, sometimes referred to them as a surrogate family and they were in um, fashion. So they were seamstresses and other things and very period specific costume. And I could actually design out my own outfits and they would make them. Oh, and I was oh, always yeah. about a season ahead. That's I'd actually fabulous. sell a wardrobe just Oh, I was great. That's awesome. But, you know, it was about, so now I'm 16, 17, and if, 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 I, if I put on any weight, you know, the whole thing's ruined. <laughs> yeah, your custom wardrobe straight out the door. You're like, well, shit, hold oh. on. Oh, God. I remember when I, my first real sort of, so I was, I was freelance running my own business, and then when I finally went to a, a proper, you know, building to work, I'm not moving around much. So I started to put on a bit of weight, and, jeez, I remember she so her name was Hillary, and uh, her partner was Cat, or his cat, I should say. They're still around. And uh, she grabbed my jacket. She pulled it around my belly, and she's like, oh, honey, one too many pasta dinners, love. And I'm like, oh, good. 
right. And you're like, I get it, yes, Hillary. Man. I'm having like, uh, thank you. I'm having a good winter. Okay. <laughs> that's right. Let's, I'm hibernating. Yeah, yeah, cold. That's right. Let's back up a little bit. I see you over there. <laughs> I don't see you in a fitted jacket, you asshole. Leave me be. <laughs> oh God. So it, it, I love it that. is what it is, but it's and, and just you know, feeling good and, and dressing well, I think that those things um there's also a respect there because I grew up very blue collar, very working class. Um, so I can change an engine in an old V8 car and work in a factory, or I can go to the British Museum and do a talk. Mm-hmm. And it's about dressing for your audience and making sure that mm-hmm. you, you know, I'm not going to walk through a cr- with a cravat and a three-piece suit through where I grew up. I sure. wouldn't last very long. But, you know, <laughs> Doesn't doesn't take much to dolly up a little bit. Well, and that's you know I used to be an educator for a company, and I would travel and teach. And when you do, you show up at a, a hair show or an industry led event. You need to look like you're a part of the industry. But I always love to bend it a little bit and be like, that doesn't mean I have to be what you think is fancy. I can still be very fancy. Absolutely. Do and I've always loved to dress well. Also, I was in. I've always my era that I go to style wise was always the 50s and the 40s. And that was the first things I was setting my hair in were big victory rolls and beehives and pin curls. And I would spend hours in my bedroom perfecting them to go nowhere. I'm from a town of 4,000 people. So nobody (laughs) gave a shit. And I remember my first pair of heels was in my freshman year of high school. And I had a pair of kitten stiletto heel Converse cafe boots. That I wore so much, I wore the stiletto like base off of wow. it, and I was like, "Girl, what That's were you ups. doing?" <laughs> but it was—I agree with you with the dressing, and I don't know about you, but like teaching me or work me are similar. But when I put a certain outfit on, it brings the rest of the character to life mm. and lets you, I think, kind of speak as that person. Absolutely, I, I never wore jeans until I was about twenty-four. I couldn't do it. I physically couldn't do it. I couldn't wear T-shirts. I didn't like it. Uh, I was always in a um, jacket or a three-piece, um, at least a waistcoat, cravat. Um, but as I started to go, I sort of went into more of the 1890s and I was t- doing upturned collars and um, ties and things. Mm. And it just became it. my comfort zone. Right. Uh, but, yeah, the, it's a funny thing, I guess. The more that people don't see you is the more you tend to let yourself go a little bit. It's like, why, why bother doing myself up now? Oh, and I, I don't, yeah, you know, do it. I mean, if you're even in coronavirus times, just look good, feel good. Yeah, and there was that was a hard line because I was I had a real identity crisis because I was unemployed for ten weeks because oh, yeah. they shut down. Yeah. You couldn't be a hairdresser. It was you could have lost your license, and there was a lot of things. So wow. I was like, spent ten weeks going, well, what the hell am I going to do? And there would be times that, I mean, you're just kind of in this pit of whatever, and I don't want any sympathy. It was, it was needed to happen, the transition. But when the days that I would even just put on like real pants and put a little bit of mascara on and curl my hair, I was like, okay, we can make it another day. Yeah. We're going to. Yes. And then when I had to go back to work and put a bra on and like real pants, then I was like, shit, maybe it's not so good. <laughs> maybe this is not as great. As, and I have, you know, I'm a mom and I have a two and a half year old. So he was home with me the whole time. And yeah. And Jill, she's a, a nurse. And so she yeah. worked. So I don't know how to dress fancy, Ooh. period. Because <laughs> he's in scrubs. If I'm not in scrubs, I'm like, I come home late. So I just change into sweats. 
She's being very humble. I she know. knows how to dress well. No, she knows Not how to really. dress well. <laughs> Where did your real Ew. fast before we go to the little estate sale walkthrough that we do, which I'm very excited for yours today. Sure. Where did your love of learning come from? Because I see it tie through what you do now to your fashion, to starting with your father. What was your driving force mm. behind learning? I find it's just natural curiosity and that curiosity has always given me something to break apart and rebuild again. So in my other life, um, so I'm basically semi-retired as a designer and I'm a full-time instructor now, but I would, let's say there was a website back in the 90s. I would actually break it apart and, and understand the code so I could actually, it's a language and any, any system can be taught. If anyone says to you, I don't understand it, that's a fool. You can understand it. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually designed a car system for a dashboard and the um, unit, the information unit that they have in the cars. I did that in China for a year and uh, in Mandarin as well. I don't speak Mandarin. Wow. I just had to figure it out. So I had a team of all pure, you know, native Chinese people. So I had to try and communicate with them as well. But there is, it's all storytelling as well. And once you understand the narrative, and I usually tell a bit of a thing to my students about, it's a bit rough, so I'll, I'll try and not use the cuss words. But oh, you can go for it. It's walk. fine. Our listeners expect it at this point. Okay. All right. Well, okay. I can call a spade a utilitarian excavating device, but if I call it a shovel, you know it's <laughs> a shovel, and it works every time. I can be in the British Museum, I can be international, and I can break down the narrative of history very succinctly, so at least you get it. Mm -hmm. um, I had a lady come up to me in one of my early talks. There's about 200 people there, and she was quite old, and she said, thank you so much for this. This is the first time I've come to a speech about this part of British history and royalty and actually understood it. And I'm like, good, that's the, that's the storytelling aspect. And I'm, I'm, maybe it's my very blue-collar background, but I believe it should be a right, not a privilege. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to communicate this message as much as you can, mm -hmm. whether it's in an industry or it's history. And then all of a sudden, everybody gets it. And the conceit of the universe is that you're not lying to somebody. There's no smoke and mirrors. And there's that, that thing where I, I gauge people, even in their careers, because I'd have to mentor quite a lot of people. And I notice when I'm not being told the truth and I see it mm. very, very easily. You don't know what you're talking about. You're saying words, but you're not giving me the answers. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's been like that ever since. And I, the history thing, even every week with my weekly shows, I get carried away. It's a narrative. And that narrative is a skeleton. And the minute I get it, and that means that because of that, because of that, because of that. Mm -hmm. everyone can understand it. Yes, that is exactly how I learn. And when I was educating for a company, there was most definitely an elitism. There is an elitism mm. in the hairdressing community. And I always taught in my classes, your favorite hairdresser learned from their favorite hairdresser who learned from their favorite hairdresser. And I will tell you every fucking color formula I use behind the chair for two reasons. You will never do it the way I do it because our brains work differently. And I want you to figure out that. And the second reason is I am nothing without a teacher and you are nothing without me teaching you. So it does me no yes. service to keep any type of industry secret a secret. I can't do hair forever. Absolutely. And I also, it's, oh. you know, nobody, there, there are masters in lots of things, but there are no masters of all things. And the Agreed. sooner you yeah. realize that, the better off and more happy you will be. Because we're not meant to be good at everything. We can be really great. And you will yeah. find your thing you're really great at. And that's what keeps the fascination going too. Because I may be an expert on something, but I don't know everything about it. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm learning every day something new and nothing makes me happier when I go, oh, my God, I just made that connection. Uh, in fact, it took me 15 years to create my hypothesis right of morning. And it was only at that 15-year mark where I'm like, I finally get it. I get this. And I, I, I know people have been here and there about it, but I, I can tell it now. I know it. And honestly, the fear that I had when I was in front of a lot of people in the British Museum in London was um, palpable. I had a very solid timeline to go with. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you watch the video, it's on YouTube with Fellows Options. Uh, I had a sea of like white hair and beards and glasses and the reflection in the glasses just folding their arms, staring back at oh, me. Oh, Lord. Oh. And I usually start with a bit of a joke, like to loosen people up. And it went down like a lead balloon. So in that very split second, you can see it on my face. I went cold, hard, sharp and brilliant. And I aimed myself directly into their hearts and their minds. And it took about 45 minutes and then people start nodding and smiling. And afterwards, they went up to the host and said, we've been dealing with antique jewellery history for over 40 years. And this is the first time we've come to an event and learned something new. And the smile on my face just could not go away. That was the best feedback I could have ever gotten. And it's just the storytelling. Uh, you, you read a book and you see it jumps around all over the place. And it's like you, I read one the other day. It's like, now we're in the 19th century. Now we're in the 14th century. Back to the 19th yeah. century. How does one person expect to understand that? Yeah. Yeah. It, you're only enforcing a point where you're confusing me. And I don't, I get that side of things, but if you're confusing me, you don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would, you know, I, I, as I get older, I am getting better about there's somebody out that can explain this better than I can. I could muddle my way through it and kind of figure it out. And, you know, I used to get in a nervous about writing these interview ups with experts. Right. But I know, I know a lot, but I don't know everything. And so that's why I'm mm-hmm. like, and I'm sure you have this sometimes where you have to relinquish that bit of yourself that's like, okay, yeah, you are smart, but this person has studied it a lot longer. And and I, I, I think that just comes from being the baby. I was the youngest. And so I was constantly oh. having to be like, I'm, I'm good, guys. I got it. <laughs> well, it's like anything. But that's, that's, the, that's what makes you a better researcher. That's what makes you a better worker because you've got the natural curiosity. And if the arrogance was there to say, I know everything, mm-hmm. I, you're not going to learn. You're not even going to be naturally inquisitive. No. So for what I do, I, I listen very thoroughly, just like I was taught. Like I'm, I'm very comfortable in what I know now. And that took, like I said, 15 years to really feel confident. But nothing makes me happier than if I do a show and afterwards someone comes up and is the most amazing collector of perfume bottles or jewelry boxes. I'm enthralled. Mm-hmm. I, I want to listen to this person speak for hours because I need, I don't know anything about that. Mm-hmm. And morning jewellery is very big, but someone might send me something which is completely not. So I'll have to research it because I can't just I can't just tell you immediately. Um, right. But that makes it more fun. It's more fun that way. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, I am I am constantly <laughs> curious. And when, you know, I was making the show, I was like, I want a show that I would want to sit and listen to. You know, I want it to take the Absolutely. twists and the turns and I want the personal aspect and I want I want the information. I know a lot of people are like, Jill, you don't talk enough. And it's because I get so involved in listening yeah. that I forget I'm supposed yeah. to talk also because I'm like, oh, I don't know any of this. And it's fascinating. To <laughs> and me. I talk to people for a living. I know. So, <laughs> like, it's my job to, like, pull out threads of conversation with people. And I, I always find, you know, like I said, I say it all the time. I find stories fascinating and mm-hmm. I find reasoning the most fascinating yeah for sure it is absolutely that makes me think of your family stories and you know trying to deep dive into just the, the little elements like how are they thinking mm-hmm. and i'm i'm a bit of a foodie as well so for me it, even rationing and things during world war one and two i i even asked my grandmother before obviously she passed away um 
what it was, what, how were they eating? What, were the, what was the day-to-day like? Mm-hmm. How were they hunting or were they actually getting tin food? Things like that. Just I'm, I'm naturally curious. Yeah. The um, stuff you don't read about in an article. That's what I want to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I will. And I throw That's my family off sometimes. I just will like throw a question out. <laughs> They'll be like, what? And they're like, what are you? And I'm like, I'm just curious. <laughs> So I'll be like, yeah, what were yeah. family dinners like at your house? What did you guys do with this? What did you do with that? And those types of things. And I, and I, yeah, I love the story. And for you, because you are such a vast collector and you know so much, we do this thing at the end of every show and it's a imaginary estate sale walkthrough, right? <laughs> but I did something a little bit different with yours today and I got my hands on Bill and Ted's time traveling phone box. Okay. (laughs) So we are going to go back. Okay. And we're going, instead of learning about it now, we're going to go back and learn about Victorian morning firsthand. We're going back and bopping around the centuries. Okay. And we're going, the first stop we're going to go to, and the way this works is you can pick one or two of the things I explain. Okay. You can't have both, unfortunately. So our first stop is in Victorian England. We're at the top of the manufacturing era. We have a choice to watch two things being made and manufactured and look over the craftsman's shoulder, okay? We can choose to watch them completely make a full gimp workpiece scene under the dome, or we can sit and watch various pieces of table work being made. Which one mm. are you going to sit and watch? I think from an industrial perspective, I'm going to go for the table working because that's the majority and that's what I want to see. I sent Jill a couple articles before we sat down. I know. And I'm like, oh, I like what? I hate this game. (laughs) She hates us every time. (laughs) I think I would like to watch the camp work, actually. I think I would, too. From the curiosity standpoint and the... You know, for those of the listeners at home, gimp work is where the hair and wire is wrapped together and it makes different shapes and they made fences and weeping willows and coffins and flowers flowers are the most popular Mm -hmm. and i i would love to sit and watch that be done all right so our next stop we're going to go into a shop we're going to jay's morning warehouse and we are going to where they specifically manufactured that proper dress for the day right so we are going to we can choose between two complete outfits top to bottom everything that goes with it we can either choose widow's weeds Okay, all black everything, blacked out, decked out, or half mourning with purples and grays in the same widow fashion. Oh, your face, your nod that you just did. You're like, oh, yes. So which one are you picking, Hayden? Are you going to widow's weeds or uh, half mourning widow? Half mourning. Yeah, much more integration of different jewels and colors. I knew it. Uh, different social proprieties and values that go into that. And also dispels a lot of the, dare I say, gray area that goes into <laughs> the half mourning phase as opposed to full mourning, which... Unless you specified between a year. So if it was between 1760, 65, 70, 75, there are certain things I want to see. Like I'd love to see a full crinoline from the 60s, mm. but I'm a big fan of the S shape from sort of the late 70s. So that's that, but that's so not enough jewelry. There is jet, whippy jet, and sorry, not whippy jet, um, <laughs> French jet in there. But no, I'm going to go for the half morning. Okay. Yeah, I would go with half morning also. And I'm going because I wear generally all black all the time. I'm going full <laughs> on morning with the parasol and every damn thing. Because <laughs> it just sounds like. Carried around. Yeah. Yes. I just, everybody's like, oh my God, your husband died. My husband's following behind me. And I'm like, no, I just love it. I just wanted to wear it. <laughs> Look at how great. Look at my shoes. I just do all of it. 
Look at this crepe. Can you believe? Touch it. My God, it's fantastic. The craftsmanship. Okay. So the last stop is a real special treat. Okay. We are going to pop into a jeweler's. Okay. And we're going to have our very own piece made. We can sit and choose and go through the catalogs, but it's not the place that was exporting our shit to other people. But if you could have any piece of jewelry made for you, would it be a ring, a palette work brooch, a bejeweled portrait, a locket? What would you pick if you could have something made in this time? What would you go with? I would definitely have a ring. I'm a ring person by nature, uh, possibly with an urn on it, not dissimilar to my signet ring that I wear these days. I had that made. And yeah, generally I'd like to, if it was not in history, but if it could be today, um, set with a diamond that's actually me. Oh, so after I pass away, I'll be turning myself into a diamond. Take that's notes, awesome. yeah. everybody. Yeah. Aiden wants to be pressed into diamonds and turned into jewelry. I love that. I love that. <laughs> what about you, Joe? Um, may as well go out sparkling. Yeah, oh, you yeah. might as well. I mean, why the fuck not? <laughs> of all the things you can do with ashes, turn my ass into diamonds, please. Yeah. <laughs> please. It's new me. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Um, I would also go with the ring because I do love rings. Yeah, this is true. I am going to go because it touches on all my stuff for me. I'm going to go with a brooch. Yeah, you are a brooch. With person. a skull oh. and crossbones effigy on it. And I'm going to use um, my grandmother's hair because it's 100% white. Mm. Wow. Set it behind it. Beautiful. Put some malachite around it. Modern day gems. I love malachite. Put that around the outside. Okay. I just think that that would be... I mean, and it is 100% snow white hair. Yeah. It's wow. gorgeous. And I'm, I hope that I end up there one day. Oh, it's hard to get those pieces with a really white hair in them. I came across one and I, I, I uh, questioned the authenticity because mm. it, was, it, was in a, it was set in a frame and it was gimp work and flowers. And then the date was in 1913 and it was silver white hair but it was long and it didn't have any gray in it so like the gray coloring it was all white and i'm like what where did that even one come from because it would make it hyper rare mm-hmm. yeah I yeah know. very uncommon very but uncommon and it was the thing yeah it was in <laughs> rough okay. shape we can only so before you go, I'm oh. going to show you my piece that i bought from the same person and when i opened the box i thought that i had been screwed so I was in a Facebook group and somebody was selling some different types of oddities and Victorian things. And she posted some hair work, which I love. And she posted this chain and it's a 52 inch long chain. Ooh. And it is, I'm going to send you the picture I had of it mm-hmm. really quickly, just because I want to hear your perspective on it. Because this person whom I got it from said that she got it in an auction overseas and henceforth and whatnot i'm going to send you this really quick it's not the greatest picture um but each individual one of those links is a three strand braid and then i'm going to put it up in front of the camera so you can see how small they are oh wow that's beautiful yeah stop shaking so it's 52 inches long and each one is you know you can't see where it begins or ends and i wanted to know what you think of that uh open box wave um is it very dark brown is that what i'm saying yes very dark brown and it's very light it doesn't weigh much of anything and i would say it is in hairdresser terms a level five which would be like a dark chestnut brown really rich chocolatey brown Uh, very common from say switzerland they used to do a lot of work more like this more like the 
a lot of the northern European um, areas probably doubled over, worn around the neck twice, and you would see it um, probably from about the 1870s. Jill's face right now, she's like, holy shit. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> it looks, yeah, I mean, I'd say in, so. in person, it looks kind of like brass or bronze. It's so beautiful. Uh, it's really pretty. Can I say the clasp a bit better? There's no clasp. Possible? It's clasp-less. No. Okay. And she was, when I, when I purchased it, that's one of the reasons I got it for a great price. I got it for $90. And she was like, if, wow. I, if I, I was, I felt like I was robbing the damn bank. And I was like, okay, fine. Here you go. PayPal. Send it to me now. And she goes, I could throw a clasp on it and it would be X amount. But I, I thought it was charming that it didn't have a clasp. And I could always find some darling. Yeah. What clasp would you recommend it's for it? I could ask. I'll ask the expert uh, right now. If I had to, there are these, um, these open clasps, which are in the shape of a serpent. Oh. So I've got a few like that. and. So the, the serpent's coiled around and it hooks on, but it might be a bit heavy. It depends on how it's connected. Mm. But essentially with all the um, the watch chains, you could mix and match whatever kind of different symbolism you wanted, but I'm, I've got a soft spot for the serpent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, goes. big soft spot. And an alloy, so it's a bit lighter maybe. maybe. Oh. Yeah, I'll have to oh, find something. And then when I'm looking, I'll just go, Hayden, what do you think of this? <laughs> what do you think of this, Deal. sir? I love that. <laughs> So real fast, <laughs> yes, I will you tell our listeners where to find all your because his website has over eight hundred articles. It is so if you want to take a deep ass dive into the art of mourning, where do they find all of your goodies? Okay, so you can find everything at www.artofmourning.com, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, of course. Uh, I am running a weekly series of lectures that are live on Zoom through Patreon. So patreon.com slash art of mourning. And you can obviously find me on all of the social media. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. And I try and pepper all of my posts with a bit of education. So it's not just about blasting out random pictures of jewellery. I need people to understand a little bit more about the jewellery as I talk about it. And uh, I've had a, this is week 25, actually, this week of my lecture series. So the teaser for that one is, yes, it will be about Memento Mori. (gasps) I love it. A deep dive into a lot of skeletons in that one, especially... Right, the development from the 13th century in things like rosary beads and the really oh. detailed skulls that they had and the evolution of skulls and the, um, the skeleton throughout modern history. I love it. We'll, we'll be sure to share that on our social media for our listeners to find and put all your links to everything on your episode page on our website, themothballprophecies.com. As always, everything we talked about from today's episode and then some is going to be up on the episode page on our website. Hayden sent us over so many gorgeous Mm -hmm. pictures of pieces. So there are going to be more on our website this time than there will be on Instagram because we can't make seven posts of pictures. Well, we could, but... Be sure to check out all of Hayden's stuff on Instagram. He, it is very educational. Like mm-hmm. I said, I built my entire program about the things you had written because oh, thank you. it's That's just, sweet. and I, you know, I pinch myself. We've had a couple of interviews of, we've sat down with people that I have admired from afar as a collector oh. and the chance, Oh, I'm not going to cry. <laughs> the chance to sit down with people that understand and appreciate what you understand and appreciate is a community I never thought I'd stumble upon. And to come into it now is just mm. wonderful. So thanks. Here I am. <laughs> yeah. Just a big boob all the time. No, pleasure's mine. If anything surprises me about the last 15 years since Art of Morning began was how much of a community that it has generated. And people have made friends all through the world. And um, 
if anything I've got some pride in in life, it's probably that. <laughs> for sure. That's and all on you, though. I can, I can for sure say that you will definitely be a guest again on our program if you'll have us. We'd love to have you back. I'd be delighted to. I've had such a fun time, ladies. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you thank so much. Thank you so much. I learned so much. Yeah, I can't. Uh, so cool. Anytime. Anytime. Yeah. I can't wait. Please, I'd love to. Yes, please. We can't. Yeah, you're definitely, you have to come back, even if it's selfishly for me, myself and I. Name the date. I'll be there. Absolutely. I loved it. All right. Be sure to stay tuned, guys. We are going to dive deep into even more of the stuff we talked about today and touch on some of the bits of history that Hayden mentioned in the Curio Corner. Stay tuned. Okay, be honest with me. I didn't fangirl too hard today. Honestly, I thought you were going to cry a little more. So I'm super proud of you. <laughs> I you. went into this like, oh, this is just another interview. And you are dressed fancy. Like I was meeting the president. He was dressed fancy. And I'm in my athletic gear, no makeup. We should all just be thankful I showered. <laughs> and I was like, I literally walked in and I was like, ah, shh. But, you know, the beauty of it, though, is he truly is his own person. Yeah. And you truly are your own person, mm -hmm. too. And I I love that. And he I mean, when he came into the interview, he's standing in what looks like his kitchen. He's got this beautiful outfit on with a jacket and a button up shirt. His hair's done. He's he's fancy. I'll just straight up say it. He is fancy. He's bougie, as the kids would say. Yes. That's a new hip word. It's hip. It's with it. He was. But he was so down to earth so kind like just fascinating yeah and we so we talked to him for what you guys just listened to that whole episode mm -hmm. and then we ended the recording and we continued to talk to him for almost another hour and a half yeah and you showed him the piece that you recently purchased and i you know it's like one of those things where it's like i followed his stuff for such a long time i've read a lot of his stuff to have him like kind of essentially appraise a new piece that I had that I had I no information on. And when you told him the price, he was like, oh, I that's know. a steal. Rob and we're bank. like, oh, God, really? That was really cool. You know, they say not to meet like your heroes or your mentors. But every time I've done it since with the show, I've just yeah. been impressed every time. I know because it's it's just been. Yeah. And I went into the whole thing. Not just like we're talking about hair. <laughs> but no, it was super fascinating. I loved <laughs> I wish we could have a video of us because your eyes are just like big the whole time and my mouth is open like, what? <laughs> we should start putting some videos up so people can see our reactions to it because, and he knew so much. And he, the dates, he just was like throwing them left and right. It was like my worst history ex like exam ever because i'm right. just like i can't remember anything and he's just like oh back in like 15 30 i'm like well on may 5th no, blah, blah, i know blah, blah, blah. yeah like, that was the coolest thing to, to watch his recall and to know like i love when people follow their passion yes and really truly do what like i say set them on fire because he and then to hear about where his collection stored oh my god like it's like a goddamn you, james bond yeah. movie totally went to bit james bond like <laughs> just like like the scanners of the hand and the eye and like you have to say if special like he i probably has a butler that gives him gloves when he walks in yeah and bows and he's and like, like oh good evening mr peters <laughs> and like hands in the gloves as he's looking through his pieces and like it's, yeah he's probably listening thinking no guys that's no it's, it's probably, much more than that there's a security <gasps> guard behind a desk being like nods hey, <laughs> what's up good evening <laughs> <laughs> it's hot tea waiting for him 
And one of the cool things he talks about that I, it always is interesting to me, and this was a pretty fact heavy episode just with Aiden himself, that there's not a lot for us to cover, mm-hmm. but I always have to know what the conversion is for money. I saw it in your head. Yeah. And so one of the things he talks about was it costing uh, 17 shillings, a lot of pieces, right? Mm-hmm. So one shilling was 12 pence, 12 Mike pences. <laughs> Also often, <laughs> also often known as a bob, as in I paid six bob for this. And I'm like, okay, I get it. Thus, there were 240 pence to every pound. So there wasn't even, it wasn't even close to costing a pound. No. At that time, 17 which, shillings. It's like chump change. It should be because you're trying to hold on to a memory of a loved one who just passed away. Yeah, we're looking at you, modern day funeral trade. Looking straight at your ass with your overpriced fucking bullshit. <laughs> I'm, I'm so mad right now. <laughs> I will sidebar. I so there are opportunities I am awarded as a hairdresser for end of life for mm-hmm. some of my guests. And I never charge for that service. No, because they're already going through so much. But some funeral homes charge over a hundred dollars and then some. For styling for an open casket. To make Aunt Ethel not look dead. Yeah, she's sleeping. Which I always thought was creepy. Anyways. Yeah. Mm. But. And I always, here's a funny thing. When I'm curling hair or whatever, and I tug a little too hard, I go, oh, sorry. And then I laugh at myself because <laughs> they're dead. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and then I go, oh, God. And then I almost burn them. In, or I'll be like, close your ear. And I'm like, they're not alive. Well, good on you. It really is. It's a beautiful experience. I've had the opportunity to do it for about five clients of mine. Well, and I think it's because you you are so close in loving that kind of stuff, like the uh, more macabre and the morning jewelry and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like an homage to them yeah. because that's what you enjoy. Like, well, and you're, you're a part of your, well, and you know this, I'm your hairdresser. Yes. You're a part of your guest's life in so many important moments. Yeah. First haircuts, mm-hmm. weddings, dances, all of those things. And then your mother of the bride hair. It's just all those mm-hmm. things rolled into one that it's like my, it's our last appointment together to walk you into the right. next part. Right. Looking yeah. your best. Yeah. 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 It's and truly special. Job. Thank so, you. But no. So, I mean, that it's good. It's good that back then it was cheap because it was such a hard life to live to begin with. Right. And they took, I mean, excellence to every point of their wardrobe. They took everything. They were buttoned up. Yeah. Top to bottom. And they had, they wore that. He kept saying this word. And I was like, like, I know what it is. Like he kept pointing to his neck too. And he's like, oh, I imagine in a cravat, Mm -hmm. a cravat. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, I croissant. I know. I'm like, I could go for a croissant. I'm hungry (laughs) right now. But no, he did talk about the cravat, which was, um, it was just a neckband and the forerunner of the modern tailored necktie or bow tie, originating from a style worn by members of the 17th century military unit known as the Krotz. Krotz? The wild Again, guys, I, I am bad with the words. So mm-hmm. there you go. And it was, you know, it was like, it was, oh, I think it was like a, a linear piece of fabric that you tied around yeah, in that neck. fashion. It was broad. And it folded over itself, and so it had the nice wide. Yeah, and I can totally see him wearing one. And it just fits who he is. You would never question it. You would no, never. No, and the it. fact that he told us that he didn't enjoy wearing jeans, and like I can totally see that. Yeah, my I husband is like jeans. that. Like my husband is a fancy dress. Every time he we is. go somewhere, I'm like, 
damn it, man, I got to put on like some jeans or something because you're fancy. Right. He is a fancy. We should get him a cravat <gasps> for Christmas. Ethan, turn the show off. Don't listen. You're not <laughs> listening. <laughs> um, one of the things we did want to touch on, um, because we mentioned it briefly in the episode, in talking about different materials that were used mm-hmm. in jewelry making, and that is ivory. And I pulled this information from Wikipedia solely because it was the only unbiased information I could find mm-hmm. it is. that wasn't leaning one way or, or the, the other, other way. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt like it just kind of laid the facts out as they were, as uncomfortable as they may be. This is what it was. And um, for those of you that don't know, ivory is a hard white material known as dentine, and it often comes from the tusks of animals, mostly African elephants. Um, elephant ivory is the most important source, but ivory from mammoth, walrus, hippopotamus, sperm whale, killer whale, narwhal, and warthogs. And also where we live in the Rocky Mountains and the Pacific Northwest, kind of, there's elk. And only two teeth of elk are ivory because they, um, evolutionary, they used to have tusks, which I never knew. I didn't either. And I, you know, I grew up walking past jewelers with elk jewelry rings in the windows. And I was like, this is gross. And I was like, it's teeth. (laughs) So ivory, like a lot of materials, came to popularity during the 1800s. In 1831, in Great Britain alone, um, the ivory trade amounted to the death of 4,000 elephants alone in one year. And ivory was used in so many things. It was used in musical instruments, billiard balls, jewelry, bagpipes, and other ornamentals. Because of the devastation and near extinction that the ivory trade caused, an ivory ban was implemented. But one of the caveats of that is if you already own ivory, an heirloom carving that has been passed down in your family or a vintage musical instrument with ivory components. Those pieces are yours and are not banned. We know that these items were created long ago and they aren't threatening today's wild elephants. That's half true. Not so much true because it's kind of one of the things where if there's a want for it, there's still a demand. And um, President Obama in 2016 tried to implement a entire ivory ban um, that didn't go through. And one of the main components of the issues of the ivory trade still to this day is China. There's a lot of things that China imports on their black market that go through their, I don't know if it would you call it mystical, religious, different types of medicinal properties. And it's like I can understand, but at the same time, it's like, come on, guys. Come on. It's devastating. So, but we wanted to talk about it. um, Just to touch on it, because he does does mention that some of the um, morning Julie was made with the ivory because it was so um, bendable. Yeah. You know, and eventually all of Hayden's pieces will end up in a museum. Yeah. Yeah. Which. Which is the perfect place for mm -hmm. things of that nature. And then, you know, because it it was found out to be problematic, manufacturers started to push people in the direction of coming up with a uh, ivory alternative. Mm -hmm. So making a false ivory, just like the birth of modern day plastics after Bakelite. Yeah, because it was dangerous. Yeah, they had to to come up with something sustainable. You know, and it happens in a lot of different things. Like there's um, with Eric, they have a rosewood from guitars. Mm-hmm. is on the extinct vegetation list. So now there's alternatives to rosewood, but there's like vintage guitars that have rosewood still that they have to try and match because yeah, you can't get it anymore. It happens to lots it, of things. It does. So to find more about Hayden's information, his website has 800 plus articles. This man knows his shit and it's all listed there. 
it's a super cool website. He mm-hmm. has like a like moving portrait when you first get onto it that reminds me of Hogwarts. It's so cool. <laughs> but to find all of his stuff, it's at artofmourning.com. And that is without a the in front of it. You can also find his work on Instagram at Art of Morning. We will have all of this up on our website, themothballprophecies.com, under Hayden's episode tab. It's where you'll find links to all of his things and his weekly webinars that he hosts via Zoom. And on YouTube at Art of Morning. If you have an interesting antique that you want to share with us, please send us an email at themothballprophecies at gmail.com. Or you can submit it on our website at themothballprophecies.com. We thank you guys so much for listening to the show. We can't wait to close out the year with all of you. Mm -hmm. And as always, I hope you find some cool shit. And I hope you remember to look under the tables and around the corner. Bye. Yeah.